Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about evangelicals who do not vote. And then we're joined by David Fitch, uh, Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great Thursday. Glad that you're joining us uh, today. Uh, Ian, how are you today? All going well? Mm-hmm. Good, good. I voted today. It was a big day. I, I as I joked with you off air, I did not post a picture of it, but it's but now still you're happened. telling everybody on your radio show, though. So I think well, that's but, you know now now it now it matters. Yes, I did vote, and I got to do early voting, and it took me five minutes, and so you. I you felt go. very good about that. It is always. I don't know how you feel. I, I didn't think about asking you this. How do you feel when you vote? I, whenever I'm done voting, I do always feel like this. I don't know if pride's the right word. This kind of like, oh, that was a big deal. I voted. Even though going in, I never think of it that way. Do you ever have that feel when you vote? Uh, Yeah, but I also have a sense of pride when I like get the oil changed on my car. Like, just the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like walk away. I'm like, yeah, I am. I am taking care of my vehicle. I'm but, an adult. <laughs> like everyone else, like that's the lowest step on the rung. That's just scraping the bottom. Of the, that's that's not quite how I feel about voting. But yeah, I think in general. I want to acknowledge both. I do have that sort of sense of like, way to go, way to go, me. I get why everyone yeah. posts photos of it. And then on the other hand, you're like, yeah, <laughs> but that's, it's not like I'm, you know, campaigning for something or canvassing the neighborhood or, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there's, there is also like a, maybe that's just how my brain works. There's like a, an equal counter reaction. that's like, yeah, but you could probably do more. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that's that's the vicious cycle that you live in. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you could be doing more. That's but right. uh, well, we're glad that you're joining us. Speaking of voting, Christianity Today released an article today uh, that's entitled this, or this came from yesterday. Uh, Meet the evangelicals who won't vote for Trump, Biden, or anybody at all. It says they're not apathetic. Convicted non-voters think Christian citizenship calls for a different kind of engagement. This article is written by Megan Fowler. Why don't you get us into this? It's a pretty long article. So if you want to see it, it's up on our Facebook page. If you want to read it, it's in, in its entirety. But Ian, why don't you get us into this uh, as we talk about evangelicals and voting? Yeah, here's how she starts. Despite their opposing views of who should win the upcoming election, Republicans and Democrats share a sense of urgency over the 2020 presidential race. Both parties would have voters believe that this is, quote, the most important election of their lifetimes. Have you heard that phrase yet, Brian? A couple times, a couple mm-hmm. times. <laughs> and that they have a responsibility to vote in the right candidate. It's always awkward to be a non-voting Christian during campaign season. And this year, non-voters really feel the pressure. The enthusiasm over the 2020 presidential election combined with increased voting options due to the pandemic has already led to record-setting early voting numbers. Non-voting is assumed to be a decision made uh, out of resignation, apathy, or lack of concern for the country. I've certainly heard people say things to that end. Mm -hmm. While some religious traditions abstain from voting because they do not take part in politics at all, think Jehovah's Witnesses, or because they separate themselves from broader society, the Amish, evangelical non-voters say they can be politically engaged beyond the ballot box. And then they're quoting Natasha Kennedy, an evangelical in Washington State, who said, I'm still involved with changing things, but I didn't want to do that in the name of a political party. Instead, she pushes back against both parties and advocates for Christ's kingdom without any allegiance to a political platform. 
Her position dates back to when she turned 18 as she considered entering the mission field. Kennedy decided she would demonstrate her devotion to Christ and his kingdom by not voting in the U.S. election. Like many Christian non-voters before her, she saw the act of casting a ballot as a sign of approval for a political power structure that in many ways opposes the way of Christ. She couldn't do it. If Jesus brought about his kingdom by laying down his rights and spurring political power, um, Kennedy wanted to follow his example. It was my way of being part of his kingdom without doing it the world's way, she said. So I'll, I'll pause there. And again, sort of as a quick tease, um, we have some guests both tomorrow and on Monday who I think have some uh, incredible thoughts, particularly around this topic. But I'd, I'd love to know, you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, Brian, that you've voted. Um, in all our time doing the show, you've never alluded to not voting. So I, I'd be curious right. to know what, what you think of this premise so far. I, I think it's really interesting because I thought what the article was going to be was somebody saying, I can't in good conscience vote for either of these two people, so therefore I'm not voting. But this is deeper than that. This is, I don't believe uh, that Christians should be voting at all, that we shouldn't be putting ourselves behind political parties. I don't necessarily agree with that, but um, that is a pretty principled stand that I had never really uh, thought about. And the way I do it is, the way I think about it much more is... Um, you know what? I, I'm uh, Jesus is my Lord. I want to keep that Jesus is king. I want to keep that front of mind. Uh, but we live in in a in a country with leaders. And and so, um, you know, we, I doing my civic duty and voting. And so uh, I do. This is interesting, though. I hadn't really thought of it as a principled stand, you know, election after election. I hear a lot of people going, I can't vote for Trump or Biden, so I'm not voting. Uh, but more as a principal stand, I find interesting. Do you know people in your life who kind of take this kind of stance to elections in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. Really, I don't. I can't think of anybody in my life like this. You yeah, I, 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 I could think of. I could think of six to ten right out, right off the dome. And maybe yep. maybe that's just you know that's a uh, that's a credit to <laughs> my, the weirdness of my story or whatever. But like I think even yeah. about you know Father Father Ken Tanner. Uh, he wrote a long post that we'll talk about, I think, tomorrow. No, that, that one's on Monday. But somebody had weighed in and said uh, what I hear a lot of people say, like not voting is an act of privilege. And uh, mm -hmm. his response was interesting. He said something like this. He said, uh, when you cannot in good conscience vote, when you can discern only participations in evil in the choices provided, the choice to abstain is valid and is, in fact, a vote. And everyone who fought for the right to vote also fought for the freedom to abstain from bad choices. And then again, of course, you know, people are weighing in with all sorts of other perspectives. I don't know. I think it's uh, th this year more than any year that I can remember in uh, the years that I've been paying attention to elections. It feels like a lot of people are having this conversation. Absolutely. So how, how do you wrestle with it? If you've got people in your sphere going, no, I'm not even sure Christians should vote or be engaged. Is that something you've considered at some point in your life? Uh, and, and how do you come out where you do, where I'm assuming you tend to vote? Uh, how has that gone for you? How has it gone for me? That's uh, just that thought process, just this whole thing. How do you think this through? Yeah. I mean, it's, that probably change changes year after year as I, okay. you know, learn to engage it more holistically, I suppose. I think, um, because I've had people, people that I respect in my close sphere of influence who have been grappling with this for far longer than I have at a much more intense level. Um, it's kind of like, you know, for out, of, out of college, I lived with some friends for a few years who were vegetarians mm -hmm. and like oh, never really? a million years anticipated or was interested in vegetarianism. But the more I like just spent time with them, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to stop 
asking you to bring this up because your arguments are starting to become very convincing and I'm just not ready <laughs> to, <laughs> to give it. I had to, I had to like articulate my, my willing ignorance. Like I, I, you are much more educated in this area than I am. And every time we talk about it, you're very convincing. So I've certainly had some of those types of ex- experiences with friends based on their theological backgrounds or convictions um, for the cases that they've made against voting in certain yeah. elections or all elections or strictly national elections. I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting discussion. And there's a lot of robust theology there that mm-hmm. I think people at the very, very, very least uh, would do well to you know learn about. Yeah. And one place you can learn is by reading this article. It's like we said, it's a lot longer than what we were able to get into here. But you can find it at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. It's a Christianity Today article, Meet the Evangelicals Who Won't Vote, kind of on a principled stand. So if this is new news to you or something you've wrestled with, uh, go on over to our Facebook page uh, and check it out. Well, coming up next, David Fitch. He is the chair of evangelical theology at Northern Seminary, also a pastor and an author. We're excited to have David Fitch join us again here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we, we love to have guests on the show, but what we really love is to have guests who come back. We like to refer to them as friends of the show. And with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined, I think, for the third time, if I'm not mistaken, by David Fitch. Dave, thanks so much for joining us again. Great to be with you guys. And, and to be honest with you, I can't remember how many times it's been. <laughs> We're going to go with three. <laughs> but hey, guys, uh, good my good friends call me Fitch. They don't call me Dave or David. They call me Fitch. So feel free just to call me Fitch. Do you feel okay yeah. with that? I feel great. In I'm fact, comfortable with it. we're, we're going to jump right into it. Fitch, why don't you tell, introduce yourself to our audience to remind them who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. It's David Fitch. I'm a professor of evangelical theology at Northern Seminary, culture, theology, ethics, and I also pastor a church with four other pastors at Peace of Christ Church, Westmont, Illinois, one of the greatest suburbs in all of Chicago, by the way. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit because uh, as most of our audience they uh, we're nearing an election, and I think you just have some really wonderful insight regarding how we engage with that well. But you also wrote, I think, an incredible book. It's been about a year, a year and some change, The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith That Feeds on Making Enemies. It feels like everyone's feeding on making enemies right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and why that message is so important right now? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, this has been a theme uh, ongoing for about 10 years. Uh, but basically, it's the idea that we get caught up in these ideological antagonisms. Talk about a couple of big words. But it's the idea that apart from God, society culture tends to line up in us versus them groups. And we get our sense of who we are. We get our sense of cause and purpose. And and we get uh, so uh, emotionally involved in there that we really can't listen to each other anymore. And this is seeped into the church. And by the way, it's so against the way God wants to work in the church. Yeah. And it's so against the way God wants to work in the world. Uh, you know, uh, remember Paul and, and Corinthians said, uh, you know, some of you are saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. But this is the way of the flesh. The way of the flesh is anger, antagonism, making war against other people, getting our sense of who we are by getting into these groups. 
But the way of Jesus is that we make space for him to work in all the dialogues, conflicts, and daily interactions of everyday life. So us versus them is about how to escape those antagonisms, escape the us versus them dynamics, Mm -hmm. and make space for Jesus to work not only in our lives, uh, but in our neighborhoods and even in our politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I know that... I think we'd all agree that our that our culture, our greater culture, is getting must more more us versus them. My sense, uh, Dave, I wonder if you agree with this, is that the church is also getting worse at this. Would you agree with that? And if you think that's the case, why do you think it's maybe even getting worse and not better in the church right now? Well, so we're we're caught up in these these dynamics of politics in in United States, and and somehow we we attached our sense of how we're going to work in the world to the politics of the United States. Uh, So people in church, I mean, this happened gradually. There's a history here, but it happened with us evangelicals. I say us because I'm an evangelical. But when we started to say, you know what, we've got to use the government to accomplish God's purposes, Christian nation, getting prayer back into the schools, even issues like abortion. And, And we're going to align ourselves with government. And we that took us out of active engagement in our local contexts and got mm-hmm. us lined up with political parties. And it's very dangerous to, because God wants to work through his presence in the world, not through coercive power through the government. This is coming from an Anabaptist perspective. So to, to summarize in two sentences, we lined ourselves up with the politics of the world instead of the politics of Jesus. I actually think that's one sentence. So uh, that's the one sentence I'd like to leave us with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I, now I have to ask you, because I've actually caught some heat uh, writing and speaking about the politics of Jesus. People will often kind of push back and say, um, I don't think Jesus was political at all. In fact, here are sort of the verses that I would cite, and I think that you're wrong for in any way conflating that Jesus was political. Brian and I will often hear, whenever we kind of delve into these waters, like you guys are pastors, just talk about spiritual things. Christians aren't supposed to think about, talk about, argue about politics whatsoever. What, what do you mean by the politics of Jesus and, and why is it important for us to engage with that? Yeah. Oh man, there's so much to talk about here, especially for a theology professor. Uh, so let me try this. Uh, let's go back to Martin Luther, the Reformation. Okay. He said, there's the right-hand way that God works in the left hand. The right-hand way is the way of the spirit. The left-hand way is called the way of the sword. The left hand was state and government, and it was supposed to keep, you know, things in line, uh, keep society in line, keep it in order. The right hand is the way the 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 the, the work of the Holy Spirit works, and it got it's the Holy Spirit, but it got individualized, personalized. So it's almost like when it comes to Jesus, he only works as inside you and your soul as an individual. He doesn't work outside there in society. That's the work of the sword or uh, the politics, the way we think about it, the way we're talking about it. But no, that division is not the way Jesus thought about politics. Jesus thought he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about a new way of being together, and he called it the kingdom of God, which was the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things. But it's got to take shape in a people. So when I talk about politics, I'm not dividing personal work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in our lives versus the work of government, keeping society in order. No, Jesus wants to transform the way we live together as the body of Christ. And then 
as the body of Christ in the world. And so to summarize again in one sentence uh, or less, uh, you know, our politics begins with us as a church, how we live together. Think about the word politics. It's like how people as a group live their life together socially with all the political problems that get. That starts for Christians in the church, but then we bring it into the world. We don't separate our politics of the church uh, with uh, the politics of the world. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Absolutely. Because maybe as as a professor, by the way, I'm always asking like either the students to repeat back what I just said to make sure we got it. So Ian and Brian, what do you think I just said? Come on and give me a couple Brian, you're of sentences. Up, you're up, Brian. <laughs> you said the, the unity of the church is important. How's that sound? Okay. I, I did. I I want to sneak one I more. I think question. it's more than that, though. I know, I know, but I wanted to sneak a quick question in here before this uh, part is done. Uh, what what's the benefit of the church growing in unity? People out there might be like, "That's the, what's the big deal? Why do you guys keep talking about this?" And and rather than talk about what's the danger if we do this poorly, what's the benefit? What would it look like if we start doing this well within the church? Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay, this is probably not the answer uh, you were hoping for. That's right. Uh, but I think when we talk about when Jesus says, let them be one as we are one, uh, the Father and Son are one, he's talking about this sense that we gather together and we have conflicts, but we work them out in mutuality and submission to the Holy Spirit together. Matthew 18, reconcile whenever two or three gather in my name and agree, come to a resolution of a problem, I am there. And what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. What is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So actually things happen for the kingdom. We, we resolve things, we learn things, we grow, and we move into the future. So unity is all about when conflicts happen on the local church level. That's the space to let Jesus work in these conflicts to discern where he's taking mm -hmm. us into the future. I mean, folks, we have conflicts now about how we should engage in economics, how we should engage in sexuality, the racial issues, racism. How are we going to deal with this racist issue in our neighborhood? And instead of like just banging each other's heads against the wall or, or going to fisticuffs, we allow God to work in those situations and bring us to what do we do now in this situation? That's where people are going to get saved. That's where people are going to find Christ. That's where we're going to see kingdom work happen in our local politics of our churches. Amen. Well, that other voice you hear is David Fitch. He professor, author, uh, pastor, our friend. So we just call him Fitchy. That's what we call him. So <laughs> Dave, I'm, I'm curious. We, we just spent the last segment talking about your book, Us Against Them, or Us Versus Them, and the election coming up. Uh, what would you say about, what should our attitude be as we go into this election season? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because uh, on one level, I think we're facing uh, a very, very, very important election. Uh, there are things at stake here that I think are really, really important. I would call the things that are at stake here for me, maybe not uh, right wing politics or conservative politics or economics versus left wing politics. I would say we're talking about maybe the preservation of democracy and things that are at stake in terms of just the preservation of society. Um, and so um, what I'm really getting people to see is we're, we're not trying to redeem society, transform society through government. We're trying to preserve society. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else on the radio but me. But uh, I, have a, I have a profound influence in my life, Stanley Hauerwas, who says, go ahead and vote, but don't expect too much. 
Okay. I think that's the perfect attitude that we need to go into. Go ahead and vote and be committed to preserving our society. But the church has still got work to do. And really, whatever happens coming out of this election, it's going to be important. But Jesus is still Lord. So I don't know. At one point, I'm saying it's important. But on another level, I'm saying, uh, it's not ultimately important. Yeah, it's important right, right. to hold society together and to do what's right. But it's not going to redeem society by who we vote for. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, here's my word. It's from Stanley Harawas. Go ahead and vote, but don't expect too much. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think about that? Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Stanley Harawas. In fact, we're in the middle of a series at our church on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this weekend is the Beatitudes. And some of Harawas's work on the, uh, the book of Matthew is yes. incredibly helpful for me in, in actually thinking some of that through, which is why, like, some of the guests that we've had this week have been so timely and so yeah. helpful for me. The question I've been kind of dying to ask you, especially knowing your sort of Anabaptist roots and whatnot, can you make a, a theological case for not voting or at least not voting at the national level this year? I hear a lot of people saying, I can't in good conscience put my name on either of these candidates. So I don't know. I don't know what to do because on one camp, I hear all these Christians saying you're a terrible Christian if you don't vote. But then you have you know, these uh, conflicting convictions, what, what, what would you say to that? I say, uh, okay, and, and I'm an Anabaptist, and, and I, I don't, you know, there's some people who, uh, if you don't vote, it's worse than uh, not going to the Eucharist on Sunday morning. I actually think going to the Eucharist, partaking in the Lord's table is more political and more powerful and more life-changing than voting. Uh, however, I mm. do think we, even as Anabaptists, have a responsibility to preserve society, to, to uh, keep it intact. And so uh, I think at this point, we've got, I, I am convinced we have so many things at stake that we have to vote. And uh, and really, I don't know about you, but I, and I'm not, uh, I, I guess I'm tipping off who I'm going to be voting for on the national level, <laughs> but I think democracy is a better option than fascism. Democracy is a better option than authoritarian rule. And so I think it's really important to get out there and vote for that, if only for that reason alone. I do. While we have you, I want to talk about the church and COVID-19. We're now seven months into this pandemic, which is just crazy. Uh, and I'm just curious, how do you think the church is doing? What changes have you seen in the church uh, that maybe either trouble you or excite you over these past seven months? Yeah, well, the one word that comes to mind is disruptive. We have all been disrupted. All of us pastors have been disrupted in our vocations as pastors. All of us churches have been disrupted from the rhythms maybe that we were used to. I think it is a, a time for disruption, and it is a time for every leader, every Christian, every pastor to reseed the church and what the church is and who, what are, why we are doing what we're doing and how we're doing it. And I really believe, by the way, we got into a lot of bad Christendom habits. You know, everything became about the big Sunday morning gathering, the goods and services in a central location. Well, that all kind of went up in smoke or, or, mm -hmm. or in yeah. COVID-19 and all the, <laughs> you know, and now we're called to ask, what is the church and why is it so important? We must seed personal relationships, local small groups, prayer, engagement of the neighborhood, engagement with the lost and the hurting places of where we live. And I, and by the way, I'm, I've got a book coming out and next year by Harold Press called What is the Church? The What, Why, and How of Being the People of God Mission. And I'm, I'm saying we need to ask these questions all over again. The what, 
is the church? Why is it so important for us Christians? And how do we organize it so that we are engaged with our local communities? I'm convinced, by the way, this this is the moment in time COVID-19 God's given us as a gift to reseed the church in mission and and see a renewal of the church. But we've we've got to get, you know, we've got to do all the little tiny things, the phone calls, the little one-on-one meetings, the little groups of five to 10 around fire pits all during the summer, even going now into the winter, the crazy ways we have to gather, we have to connect, we have to engage, we have to overcome the loneliness and desperation of our culture. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, this is the time to be a pastor. And by the way, I might add a church planter. Mm -hmm. See, now I'm just dying to ask, and I'd love for you to give us a tease, I guess, of, of the book, because one of the, and I've caught some heat for this too, I'm grateful for our digital resources and the stuff we've been able to do online in this season. But I, I was with some friends recently and I said, I, I'm not sure of this, but I think I think the phrase digital church might be an oxymoron. Like I don't actually know that, that I don't know that that's actually a thing. And so you're you're writing a book on what is the church. You know, you've also written a book about us versus them. There have been few topics more divisive, maybe second to politics, uh, than than how the church handles COVID. Should we gather? Should we gather? How should we gather? Yeah. What? What is the church is a question everyone's asking. How, how would you, in just a couple of minutes, kind of just wet our whistles a little bit around that idea? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so uh, I, I guess the main, one of the first things I want to say is uh, uh, us pastors are being disrupted as much as our congregations are. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's just take the Sunday morning gathering. We were so used to measuring things like how many people show up on Sunday uh, we're so now. Now we're almost uh, uh, defaulting. How many people show up on Facebook Live or whatever platform <laughs> we're using to get people to watch us on TV? And and I gotta say, it's it's not it's not going to bear forth fruit uh, in the way we think it is. Let's get rid of the numbers counting in that way, and let's rethink what are we doing on Sunday morning? We're we're gathering into the living presence of Christ. We're gathering to do the basic practices of the Christian Mm -hmm. faith. That is worship. That is eating around the table and submitting ourselves to one another in the presence of Christ. We're hearing the word of God preached and proclaimed that the hope of what God is doing in the world. And, and then we are doing all that so we can go out and really know and recognize his presence and disciple one another and be in the places of hurting and pain in our culture. So I'm just saying we have to rethink what we're doing. We're not going to get rid of the Sunday morning gathering, but if we do this opportunity right, we're going to rethink what are we doing and why, and why is it so important, and make it essential for the way we live the Christian life the other six and a half days of the week. That's a good word. As we close up here, David, I'm wondering, people, you're on social media often and uh, other places people can find you. If people are like, hey, I want to hear more what this guy has to say and write, where can they find you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Facebook. Fitchest is is the Facebook uh, location. Uh, some great conversations go on there almost every day. That's where I have uh, a lot of intense conversations like the ones we're having right here. But also on Twitter, Fitchest is my handle. And that kind of feeds off the Facebook. So join me either one and we'll have a good time. I also have blog posts and other stuff that you can just Google and find my name somewhere it. out there. 
great David Fitch. He's the uh, chair of evangelical theology at Northern Seminary, a pastor, as he said, out here in Westmont, author of many books. We'd encourage you to go look them up on Amazon or wherever you get your books. David Fitch, uh, friend of the show. We look forward to having you on again soon. Thanks so much for joining us again, friend. Great to be with you. See you next time, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank, thank you, doctor. <laughs> You're listening to The Common <laughs> Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, excited to have you joining us on this Thursday. An interesting article, an interesting kind of concept and thought here in the midst of the pandemic that we're in the, in the midst of. Uh, this is a website that we always know the articles you found because it's websites I've never heard from. This is called Aeon, A E O N, A E O N. It's like and, it's like someone with an accent saying, "Hey, Ian." <laughs> you should spell your name A E O N. Aeon. No, thank you. Uh, the article is entitled "This: The Need to Touch." The language of touch binds our minds and bodies to the broader social world. What happens when touch becomes taboo? Because we all know, in the midst of the pandemic uh-huh. right now. Uh, no hugs, handshakes, high fives, whatever. It's like we're, uh, you know, we're all kind of living in our own little bubbles. And and so this article is asking, it's written by uh, Laura Crucianelli, research fellow at the Brain, Body and Self Lab uh, in Stockholm. Uh, so doing work on what is actually happening as we no longer, basically touching each other becomes taboo. Uh, so why don't you, you found this article that is very interesting. Why don't you get us into it again? I feel like I say this every time. It's really long. So if you want to read the whole thing and dig into it, go to our Facebook page. Why don't you get us into it and then we'll chat about it. Yeah, I've been dying for someone to write an article like this because I think what I hear a lot of people at a surface level talking about, like, ah, isn't it awkward when you don't know if you can do, you know, handshake or high five? And, and I, which I totally agree, but I'm like, I think it is so much deeper than just yep. social awkwardness. Although that's the part that maybe seems most obvious to us. So Either way, I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Uh, It begins by saying, touch is the first sense by which we encounter the world and the final one to leave us as we approach death's edge. Touch comes before sight, before speech, writes Margaret Atwood in her novel, The Blind Assassin. It is the first language and the last, and it will always tell the truth. Our biology bears this out. Human fetuses are covered in fine hairs known as lanugo. Is that right, you think? I think so. Yes, we'll go with it. There's a lot of words in here I'm not going to know how to pronounce. Exactly. <laughs> uh, which appear around 16 weeks of pregnancy. Some researchers believe that these delicate filaments enhance the pleasant sensations of our mother's amniotic fluid gently washing over our skin, a precursor to the warm and calming feeling that a child, once born, will derive from being hugged. Touch has always been my favorite sense, a loyal friend, uh, something I can rely on to lift me up when I'm feeling down or spread joy when I'm on a high. Uh, as an Italian living abroad for more than a decade, I often suffered from a kind of touch hunger, which had knock on consequences for my mood and health more generally. People in Northern Europe use social touch much less than people in Southern Europe. I didn't know that. In hindsight, it's not surprising that I spent the past few years studying touch as a scientist. Lately, though, touch has been going through a prohibition era. It's been a rough time for this most important of the senses. The 2020 pandemic served to make touch the ultimate taboo next to coughing and sneezing in public. While people suffering from COVID-19 can lose the sense of smell and taste, touch is the sense that has been diminished for almost all of us, test positive or not, symptomatic or not, hospitalized or not. Touch is the sense that has paid the highest price. But if physical distance is what protects us, it's also what stands in the way of care and nurturance. I'll stop there because I, 
have about a thousand thoughts on this. I was just talking with a friend yeah. about some of the miracles of Jesus and how um, how unique and noteworthy it is that there are certain accounts where Jesus heals a leper, but the text tells us that he laid his hands on them, yep, which yep. he didn't have to do. A leper is someone who uh, had experienced some some of them for decades. What it meant, what it felt like to have to declare unclean anytime they entered a city and, and hadn't maybe been touched in a long time, showing Jesus cares about not just simply healing them of their leprosy, but also maybe of something deeper. And that's maybe a little overdramatic for this conversation, but not much, I don't think. Because I think what, what we're going to see for a lot of people, and if you're familiar with like the five love languages, you know, one of them is physical touch. So I do think mm-hmm. some people might be feeling this more intensely than others right now. But I think next to everyone on planet Earth, needs some level of physical touch, physical engagement uh, from other humans. And like this author saying, with it being straight up taboo right now, I, I, th- I think it'll be really fascinating, you know, in the years and decades ahead to study the effects that are happening right now. Yeah, I remember learning in school of what I thought was like the cruelest experiment ever. You remember reading about how like in orphanages, they wouldn't touch certain kids, uh-huh, like no right. physical, and the uh, the damage it did to those children. I think this is, uh, wired deep within us. I, I know your church isn't meeting in person on Sundays at all, but like I've said before, ours is meeting with like 50 people, distanced, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and what used to be my favorite part, uh, probably on a Sunday morning, even right up there with preaching sometimes, has become one of my least favorite parts. And that's when everybody's leaving and I stand at the back door. I used to hug, hey, uh, shake hands, do this and that. And now that awkwardness, you're kind of hitting elbows, smiling at each other behind masks and this and that. The, the sense of loss over just a handshake or the ability mm-hmm. to hug somebody, I think, uh, and I do tend to be a physical touch person, but I think for everybody to some level, I think the sense of loss now that we've been at this over seven months, I do think is profound. And it does raise the question, when does it come back? How does it come back? What does it look like even when it comes back? Right. We did the stories about is the handshake or the high five gone for good? Is the hug, you know, gone? what's it even going to look like? But this is just a fascinating article about how deep the need is and how important it is for just this sense of touch uh, between human beings. Yeah. So what do you what do you think this is actually going to look like going forward? Like not know. just not just in terms of social norms, although that's a that's a pretty interesting discussion. What do you think the effects might be if, say, for the next five years, 10 years, it's still predominantly taboo for strangers to hug or high five or handshake. You know, you and I are, are in unique positions. I don't feel like the vast majority of people are like hugging um, acquaintances all the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about like the lobby of the church. There's plenty of people that I hug that I don't I don't know super well. I certainly know that they're a part of our community. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's a un- that is in some ways unique to the church, but not exclusively, obviously. What do you think will be some of the potential long term effects? I think there's a loss of community. I think there's a loss of intimacy, even between friends or even between, you know, acquaintances in church, like you said, or something like that. I think over time, as we're all just waving to each other and talking at a distance, uh, there, there's got to be there's a loss of connection there that I'm not sure we'll feel. But over time, I think you'll sense something is different. Um, and again, some people will feel more about this and others. And I also just think there's an awkwardness, right? Like if I'm willing to go back and be like, 
oh, I feel good hugging people or shaking hands, but I don't know what that person feels like, right? It's like we almost all need to wear wristbands that like kind of say what we're willing to do <laughs> going yeah, forward. Right, and so right. I also think there's going to be raised awkwardness, but I think there will be a loss of of connection, of community, of intimacy uh, over time as it's just uh, constantly distanced from one another. Yeah. And this article, again, we might actually have to revisit this article because we didn't really get to dive into it much at all in this segment, but there's all sorts of other correlations. There's certainly like we've talked about oxytocin on the show before this. Uh, some people call it like the, the cuddle hormone. You know, it's that it's, the, it's mm-hmm. the happiness hormone. So like, you know, when you hug for I think it's, you know, more than four seconds or something like that. But other things like uh, touch is especially important as we age. For instance, gentle touch has been shown to increase the amount of food intake in a group of institutionalized elderly adults. I'd never heard that before. My guess is um, there's probably a lot of facts to that end that we have no idea about right now that we'll see some of the detriment, I think, on the other side of this as we still try to navigate forward. Yeah, she in the last paragraph of the article, let me just read this one sentence. She says, a better world is often just a hug away. And I think a lot of us feel that. Like, what's it going to mean when we can hug each other, if we can hug each other again uh, when we get through this pandemic? Uh, We'd be interested to know what you think. Some of you might be like, no, one of my favorite things about the pandemic is I don't have to hug people and shake hands and this and that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would love to know what you have to say. Go ahead to our Facebook page, read this article. Uh, let us know what you think. The Common Good Radio Show on the Facebook. Well, uh, we're going to start the next hour, our next segment coming up uh, with something that Ian has been asking me to do for a few weeks that I did last night. And I'm going to need some on-air therapy session here as we talk about it. We're going to start the next hour doing that here on the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, I finally watched The Social Dilemma, and then uh, are we being discipled by cable news? Uh, You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're, We're glad to have you with us today. All right, I did it. Last night, I sent you a text as I was about to begin. If anyone has listened to the show, they know that for what, maybe the past three weeks, a month? I've been saying I'm going to watch The Social Dilemma, and you every day ask me, did you watch it? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, last night, you got a text from me going, here we go, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I watched it. And uh, It's actually it was, all the text said. It just said, here we go, and I was very confused. I was like... With a picture, right? <laughs> I'm yes. kidding, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's funny you say that, because someone the other day, I wrote something with a picture, and they didn't get the picture. They're like, what's that mean? <laughs> you, you just looked insane. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so a couple different things. If you've never seen Social Dilemma, it's on Netflix, about an hour and a half documentary uh, about social media and its effects. So well done. Mm-hmm. I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed it and I am thoroughly scarred and don't know what to do. So if we're <laughs> going to spend the next eight minutes or so with you helping me process this, what do we do with the information? Because it's hard not to come out of that movie not thinking all right, I have to delete everything yeah, right. right now. Right. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Because if you've never seen it, I would encourage you to see it because I was trying to explain it to my daughter and she's like, well, was it just kind of about how they get you like to see what they want and ads? I'm like, yes, but like so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the algorithms. And basically the way I said it to her was it's not even so much 
that they're feeding us stuff, but that they're controlling what we want to even have to eat, like to be fed. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I'm babbling about this because honestly, it did kind of mess me up last night. Like I was like, I don't know necessarily what to do, which a good movie should do. Uh, so you've you saw it a long time ago. Uh, how would you how did you process the social dilemma? And did it make any changes in uh, in what you do with social media? Yeah, I think of there's a couple of phrases in particular that I had never heard before that kind of stuck out to me, like uh, like surveillance, surveillance, capital, capital. Well, I can't even say it yes. stood out to me, capitalism. but I can't say it. Surveillance, yeah. capitalism, um, which like to your point. When we when we perpetuate the notion that we still are, you know, captains of our own ship, then messages like the one in the social dilemma stop short of what's really going on, I think. And we can maybe brush it off as like, ah, they're curating certain ads toward me, you know, because I know I'm a backpacker. And so I get extra backpack ads to someone else. I'm like, no, it's way more formative than I think people yes. realize. And you and I as pastors talk about formation a lot, but more often in a in a spiritual sense, although it, it isn't just spiritual by any means, formation is, you know, our whole integrated selves. But I think that's that's part of why people have responded to this film the way that they have, because I think a lot of us have known and probably even joked about like, Oh man, I I brought up this burger and then I pulled up Facebook and then I saw an ad yep. for that burger. Crazy. So it's, it typically has come down to in the past for a lot of people that I've been talking to is either like, Oh, they're feeding me ads and, or they might be listening in or paying closer attention than we realized, mm -hmm. which again is frightening in and of itself. Um, but I, I think part of what the, the, the film does powerfully well and t like to your point, frighteningly well is to think through what are the things that are shaping us. And that's really kind of the, the, the magic, the power of a lot of social media is that it's forming us in ways we don't realize. So like if you're going to yeah. the gym and you're like constantly working out your arms and your arms get bigger, you're like, I know exactly what's shaping them because I've intentionally, proactively, cognizantly been working on them. What we don't tend to realize are like the short, seemingly minuscule shifts in our behavior or ways of thinking or ways of socializing that what the movie is kind of getting at is like, that's not accidental. That's not a, an accidental uh, byproduct. That's not, a, that's not a passive thing. That's like a, a very intentional, curated, multi-billion dollar industry trying deeply to shape you in certain ways. And that, to me, is where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. So there are a couple different things that stood out to me. Like now it's fresh in my mind. So let me just uh, shotgun a bunch of them and then you can okay. uh, reflect on any of them. There was there's one particular quote and I might get it wrong a little bit, but it basically said, uh, if if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. The second quote was the only two industry. I it didn't use industries that call their people users are is the are, uh, drug dealers and social media. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Oh, man. And then there's a beautiful the way they made the movie, I thought was really ingenious because it would have lost it if it was an hour and a half of just these brilliant people just talking. Uh, but there's like also this kind of story arc going uh -huh. right where there's this fictional family uh, that they kind of follow. And that part where the youngest girl um, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, uh, the part where the youngest girl is on Snapchat and she's obsessed with what people are going to say about her next, are they called snaps? I guess uh, the picture, like the filtered picture. 
and she gets all she makes it and all of her friends like beautiful this or that and just come back and the one friend makes a joke could your ears be any bigger right and the rest of she's devastated crying like it was uh it was haunting as a dad with the girls uh and a son you're just like uh that's crazy and then the last one was at the end of the movie when Basically, they start talking to all these people who have been in the formative stages of making social media, all this stuff we've been talking about, mm -hmm. uh, when all of them basically are like, no, I don't let my kids on social media, right. or at least till they're 16. And then they ask the one guy who I believe is now the CEO of Pinterest, I believe, they ask him, uh, what is your, what are you worried about, right? What are you worried about? And he goes, in the short term? And the guy, the, uh, the uh, interview goes, yes. And do you remember how he answered? Mm -mm. He goes, civil war. It was wow, like, wow, wow. And his point being, uh, and, and I think that was one of the scarier parts of the, because it was hard to watch what it does to us individually. But when they got into the, into the weeds and the depths of like how their, how social media is not just um, causing us to be polarized, but it's even deeper than that, how they want us to be polarized. Like they're working towards that uh, and monetizing that. Like it, it really made me go. How many times on this show have you and I gone? Social media is part of the problem uh, of polarization. I left watching that movie going, well, we might be underselling it. Like social media mm -hmm. might be the problem uh, above all others. And then others fall over that. That disturbed me more than others. So I don't know. Those were all the ones as I thought back going, oh, my gosh, as a dad, what do I do with like kids? And and how do I do that with my own life where it's it's un unquestionable that they've made these to be addictive? Like to be, that's a lot of the movie about the addictive nature. And then kind of, you start to see our society through how they're curating stuff. It was scary. So I don't know, take any of those you want with our last minute, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was a real wake up call for me. Don't you think here, we'll end it this way. You'd encourage people to watch this, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, it's been a while and I, I don't know that I remember if it's safe for kids or not. Would you recommend it for, it is, it I, is? Okay. I, it, it is PG 13, but I watched it pretty closely because I was like, do I want my older daughter who's a junior in high school to watch it? And I do. And I kept, there was like two swears in the whole thing. And okay. that was basically it. So, yeah, okay. it's OK for that age. Yeah, there's a there's an ethicist named uh, Tristan Harris in the movie that uh, yeah. I found I found the quote, actually. Uh, Social media isn't a tool that's just waiting to be used. It has its own goals and its own means of pursuing them by using your own psychology against you. I remember hearing that thinking, oh, yeah, exactly like what you're saying, like it. It is possible that some, if not, I mean, I don't think all, but certainly the vast majority of some of the motives are more nefarious than maybe we've let on. And even like in the movie, when he talks about, man, our, our inspiration behind the like button was to spread positivity. We never imagined, exactly. we never imagined that it would like contribute to kids depression by not getting enough likes. So there's certainly some sense of like, this is spun way out of control from what the original intent was, but either way. Uh, I would encourage you to watch it, but don't yeah, don't just watch it. Like, take some necessary steps. Whether that's like we've said, you know, deleting certain apps off your phone, converting it to grayscale, even simple things like plugging it in in a different room other than your bedroom. There are little right. little tweaks that I was really inspired to uh, implement after watching it that I thought were helpful. Absolutely. Well, thank you for letting me process. Of course. You made me watch it, so you get to listen to the processing. <laughs> Uh, I would, too, encourage you to watch it. And uh, it really is an important topic in our day right now. It's super important. And it put it frames a lot of what a lot of us feel right now, uh, personally, but also culturally. I think it would be uh, well worth your time. It's an hour and a half on Netflix called The Social 
dilemma. Well, coming up next, I want to read a uh, post on Facebook, kind of a political post, a uh, really interesting one that I saw. We're going to give it a read and let Ian reflect on it. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Thanks for being with us today. Well, we're in a political time of year, of every four years here. The Can you believe, I just as an aside, uh, it just hit me today, presidential election in like five days. That's kind of crazy mm-hmm. for how much buildup there is uh, that, that now it's upon us. And I wanted to read, we've been doing a lot of work here on the show, reading stuff on Facebook, articles, dis- different posts, you know, John Piper, Albert Moeller, all these different people. Uh, and I found a post on Facebook by one Ian Simpkins that I would like to read. And because I thought it was very well written and I would love for you just to talk about it. Uh, and this is always the disclaimer. Uh, one of us always drives the show, which means in our lingo that we're picking what we want to talk about. And I never tell you, hey, I want to do one of your posts. So if anyone thinks like, oh, gosh, Ian self-promoting again, Ian learned about two minutes ago that I was going to read this to him. So uh, uh, so you can uh, it is not self-promotion. In fact, I'm not sure he enjoys these, but I enjoy doing it to him. So I'm going to read your post kind of lengthy, but I thought it was really good, man. Oh, so thanks, man. Uh, not to pat you too much on the back. Uh, but I would love kind of your thought process behind it. What what were you trying to get at? And also, what's the response been to it? Sure. So here we go. Written by Ian Simpkins on October the 22nd. I feel like a political refugee. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that I feel a bit like a civil vagrant in a post-religious right America, roving the dimly lit streets without a real home to lay my head. It seems that the same Bible that charges us with the task of caring for the unborn also calls us to care for the imprisoned, the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. This same Savior moves us from our comfort to seek justice, promote peace, condemn abusive and expressive, and express radical love in a world that is desperately in need of restoration and the hope of salvation. When it comes to politics, then, I see it as no suitable place to put my ultimate hope and confidence. I am convinced that as Christ followers, it is critical that we engage somehow and do so with a kingdom perspective in mind. Jesus spent much of his time on earth engaging society and talking about issues of culture, immigrants, abused women, oppressed laborers, widows, orphans, and yes, even corrupt politicians. The looming question for me then becomes exactly how can and should one engage in these areas in the modern world? We want a new dream. The old one is bankrupt. This is what I think freed Paul and Peter to write things about submitting to and honoring the authorities of their time, even amidst brutal brutal persecution. They had a beautifully crystallized kingdom perspective that began to infect their communities with truth and grace. Christians, I believe, need to pray for the president, regardless of who it is or will be. Because after all, unlike those who see politics as ultimate, we recognize that our political structures are important but temporal, and our citizenship and allegiance is rooted in a different kingdom. Rather than merely engaging in the political process, I believe Christians have a unique responsibility to elevate it. We're called to stand above the partisan dissension and demonstrate a better way. Should we have an opinion? Yes. Should we care about our country? Yes. Should we vote? Yes. But I think it's time we talk politics in a way that models the teachings of Jesus rather than ignores them. The early Christians collided with the empire of their day, crossing party lines and building profoundly subversive friendships. They were nonpartisan, but by no means were they nonpolitical. And a fundamental truth that I have to constantly remind myself of is that governments can develop legislation, but they certainly cannot heal the heart. It could provide a meal or housing, but it can't create community. 
This sacred task of bringing reconciliation, restoration, healing, and love is something we cannot leave solely up to the government. That is the beautiful work that we're called to do. As Christ followers, voting cannot be something that we do in a gymnasium every four years. We vote every day. We vote by how we spend our money, the products we buy, and the causes we support. We vote by the things we choose to speak up for and against. We vote with our lives. It was the early Christians uh, you were imprisoned for their defiance, subordination, uh, and civil disobedience, choosing not to declare Caesar as Lord, but instead to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. They went toe-to-toe with the abusive empire surrounding them, opposing the notion that peace comes by uh, why of coercion and crushing force. But instead, true peace and freedom came through grace, forgiveness, and through a man named Jesus Christ. And for their insurrection, they were executed. A new empire is breaking through the cracks of this anxious world. It isn't ultimately about who sits at what desk in what office, but the one who sits on the throne. May the church rise up to be the church. May we be conduits uh, conduits of that reality in a world desperately in need of redemption. And in the end, it's not about an elephant or a donkey. It's about a lamb. Glory to the lamb. That is a uh, long Facebook post written by Ian. And uh, I will just say, man, I think that's beautifully written. Uh, Well done. And I think it blesses people. But I'm curious, why'd you write it? Kind of what was the thought process behind it? And then uh, what's the response been? Well, the first thing I'm realizing is that I need someone to proofread things for me. (laughs) I should read it before I read it. (laughs) I I should. Yeah. Would you do that for me? Can I send you my post before I actually post them? I was like, oh, gosh, I wish I wish I had come through that. The other thing is, like, I've come through it so many times. I'm like, how did I miss those? Either way, that's not that's not the point of this segment. Um, Why I wrote it is a tricky question i probably because of that first sentence i feel like a political refugee like that's a legitimate we've talked about that on the show like it feels like yep oh man i i I feel like there's there's things on this side that i really resonate that i feel deeply convicted by but but not everything and then over on this side like well yeah that i really and i guess i felt that most of my voting life but certainly more intensely now and and some of that's been exacerbated by you know you and i have talked about christian leaders in particular who who outright will say you cannot be a christian and vote blank that to me has, I think, unearthed a newfound angst, I guess. And like, not just that perceived, I think, false dichotomy, but also in the residual polarization that's happened as a result. And and some of uh, what feels at times like an unhealthy hope in stock and allegiance in this. Th- and again, you know, we you know, we were talking with Fitch and I, I think that there's. I think political engagement is important. I mentioned it in the post, like yet I still think we need to be involved in these ways, but it, it doesn't it sometimes feel like via the rhetoric that you're hearing, particularly from Christian leaders, like, wow, you, you are putting so much more stock in this than I think might be spiritually healthy or wise. And right. that I think is just a hop, skip and a jump away from, from tribalism. I think it's why we see such vitriol, uh, on both sides, sometimes it's because we're actually talking about the issues. I think that is still happening. I think there's intelligent disagreement and dialogue, um, but it often feels like, oh, man, people are responding to opposing opinions like someone just insulted their mom. You know what I mean? Like they're like, oh, you mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. that. And that to me is always I'm always a little leery of like that level of allegiance to a political party or a political system. Again, we we have to engage. I think that, you know. God calls us to uh, exist in the world in these ways, but 
I try to make this clear in the post. My 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 ultimate allegiance, my first allegiance, um, is to a king and a kingdom. And I think to yeah. get that order out of whack makes everything else complicated. Yeah. With the last minute or so we have here, just uh, what's the response been? Have people been like, hey, man, I needed – that's where I'm at. I've needed to hear that. Or have you gotten some blowback from this or a little bit of both? Yeah, the response hasn't been, hey, can I show you where your typos were? I wish that. <laughs> I, can I be your editor? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Do you have any money? I would love to help you out here. Um, the response in general, I think, has has been mostly positive. It is always – it's always hard because I don't I don't necessarily know that people would be letting me know if they completely disagreed with it. So on one hand, it feels encouraging because it feels like um, like somebody just wrote me this morning and said, man, I, I just felt like you gave language to something that I haven't had words for yet. Mm-hmm. And that was like clarifying part of what he was mentioning was like, I've been feeling a lot of anxiety and that's actually helped me just whew, take a breath. So thank you for that. So I, that's really humbling. There's obviously going to be people that, you know, want to push back or they'll assume something about my own party affiliation <laughs> or politics. You know what I mean? Like yeah, there's people yeah. will often, you know, fill in their own blanks or whatever. So that's always the risk. But um, I I meant it not as a rant or manifesto, but to try to like, I don't know, to try to pastor a digital space a little bit. And uh, and hopefully hopefully it was helpful. Yeah, well, that's up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And uh, give it a read. And as I said, well done, man. Good job. And hopefully people are blessed by it. Well, coming up next, a friend of the show, Ed Stetzer at Christianity Today, uh, wrote this. People are being discipled by their cable news. We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Glad to have you join us uh, at Christianity Today. Ed Stetzer, we've had him on the show a couple times here. Ed uh, writes at Christianity Today often. In fact, he's got his own blog over there called The Exchange. uh, And he wrote this. Here's the title. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Uh, People are being discipled by their cable news. How do we disciple in good as we disciple out the wrong? So, Classic Ian, uh, Ed Stetzer, he never shies away from the hard stuff. So <laughs> tackling cable news uh, in this time, time of election, I think, uh, certainly important within the church. But here's where he goes. Here we go. In an interview on immigration with Steve Inskeep on NPR's Morning Edition, I concluded by talking about discipleship. It was a bit tricky because I was a little unsure about mentioning the idea of discipling in that context. Inskeep specifically asked me whether evangelicals were hitching their wagon to the wrong horses. I explained cautiously using the term discipleship. I said this, well, it's a fair question. The challenge is uh, a lot of people are being discipled or spiritually shaped by their cable news choices. I think ultimately evangelicals need to know for what being to be known for what they are for rather than what they're against and showing and sharing the love of Jesus seems like a better thing to hitch ourselves to over the long term as evangelical Christians. I may have been unsure at first, but I'm glad that I used the word disciple in that context. You see, discipleship highlights a fundamental issue for followers of Jesus right now. There are certain things that are in us and need to be discipled out of us and other things that need to be discipled in us and aren't currently there. Let me pause there. What do you think of that kind of introduction, that the way that he frames that? I like it. I mean, I um, we've read and heard enough from Stetzer that I, everything you're reading, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I've heard him say some version of that before for sure. Yeah, for sure. So he says this, uh, he says three things to disciple out. Some things that we need to disciple out of believers. The first is fear. 
In John 20, verse 9, we read how the disciples were hiding behind the doors because of fear. 2,000 years later, a lot of people are hiding behind closed doors because of fear. We not only fear the coronavirus, we are fearful of the future. Today, people hiding behind closed doors because of fear have something that humanity didn't always have, the internet. We're hiding behind closed doors, fearful for ourselves. He goes on to say later, fear is not the only thing. Oh, secondly, here's what we need to be discipling out. We need to disciple out a love for controversy, which is a recurring theme today. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul reminds them, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Avoid foolish controversies, he says in Titus chapter 3. So the love of controversy we need to disciple out. Third thing he says, we also need to disciple out of ourselves and others a sense of falsehood. For example, conspiracy theories abound today. Conspiracy theories aren't the only example, but they are far too common. All right, so those are three. He says we need to disciple out falsehood, love of controversy, and fear. Those are some really big topics that are at play right now. Uh, I think framing it as we need to disciple these out of people are interesting. Uh, Would you... Uh, just I'll ask it this way. Do you agree with them? Do you think these are three biggies that we as churches and pastors need to be getting? Yeah, I think I think they're big. I don't know if I were to nail it down to three, that those are the three I would end up with. I'm always, you know, we were working on some uh, Christmas messages today, which seems crazy to already be working on that. But, you know, and we've heard, I think Rick Warren was probably the first guy I heard say it, you know, that there are 365 fear knots in scripture, one for every day of the year. Um, I've said it before from the pulpit, you know, that it's the most common command in all of scripture. However, it does also seem like there are plenty of stories of men and women in the Bible who were obedient amidst fear, right? It wasn't, you know, they didn't pray this prayer and fear just kind of magically went away. And I think sometimes, again, I, I get, maybe I'm splitting hairs. Sometimes I think when we talk about like discipling fear out of, out of ourselves or out of our communities, the assumption can be, that if I fear at all anything, I'm in sin or I'm, you know what I mean? Like there's, like, no, hmm. there's certainly things that I think it's reasonable to be fearful of. Now, in like in a, you know, a, a macro eternal sense. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's more of what some of these writers of scripture were getting at. But like you're walking on a really rickety bridge and it's like swaying in the way. And it's like, hey, <laughs> yeah. fear not. You're like, mm, this seems like a thing worth fear. I don't know. So, yeah, I think. I think in general, he makes he makes compelling cases, and uh, I think I can see the perspective that he's really working from here, especially as it pertains to conspiracy theories, which we've heard him talk about before. Um, right. I, I, I think that's certainly an important one. Part of what uh, I guess I'm reticent about, I guess, because right now it feels like for a lot of Christians, not fearing is code for not wearing masks. You know what I mean? So, I'm like, so, so that's do. why that's probably why I'm tiptoeing a little bit. So that's weird. Everything's being conflated with everything else. So you know, taking him at face value, I, I think I think he's got some uh, some good insight here. That's right. And then he goes three things to disciple in. So the first three were disciple out. These are disciple in. First, disciple people in the way of Jesus, not the Jesus made in our own image, but the Jesus who spoke the truth and defended the weak, who spoke truth to the Pharisees and religious rulers of the day. An example of this is the love of the stranger, something that needs to be discipled into believers. Do you want to help remove the bias some people have against people of different races? Help them to have love for one another and love for the stranger. Uh, And so discipling in the way of Jesus. The second one, he says that we need to disciple. We want to disciple into people what it means to have a soft answer. 
Proverbs 15.1 tells us a soft answer turns away wrath. And the third one, he says, lastly, we want to disciple truth into people. If there was ever a people who should be driven by truth and have a greater sense of discernment about how to deal with truth, it should be followers of Jesus. Ed writes, a pathway that you might take at your church is to help people to be discipled, to love the stranger, to evoke a winsomeness in relating to people and to live apart from fear and falsehood. So those three, and the list could be a lot longer, but uh, I thought those were pretty good about uh, discipling in the way of Jesus, what, how to have a soft answer, and to disciple kind of truth from falsehood. What do you uh, think I thought this? they were the worst, Brian. Totally disagree. <laughs> so All three stupid. of them terrible. Oh, boy. No, they're, they're really good. I, I think um, I was thinking a little bit of uh, Scott Sauls, right, when he was writing about the soft answer. What's, what's Sauls' book? A Gentle Answer? A Gentle Answer, This is right. going to sound – I don't know how it's going to sound. I'm glad to see more people writing about that, though. I do think in some areas, obviously, Christians need probably increased boldness and maybe need to speak out more. On the other hand, and this isn't just a social media observation, um, boy, could we use some some growth, some some formation in the area of the gentleness of our answers, the softness of our words. I realize that some people will like hear that as cowardly or passive. I just think, and again, you know, maybe that's not you. Maybe maybe your words already are too soft and you actually need some, some more courage to speak oh, up. Yeah. But I, I, I feel encouraged that I see more and more Christian leaders writing about how that's important, which, cause it implies it's not just about, it's not just about being right. It's about being right in the right way, you know? So if we're, we're right about something, but we're a total jerk about it, kind of like what Eugene Cho was talking about, like, man, that, that might actually end up doing more damage than good. Mm-hmm. Uh, with like, this is an unfair question with only like a minute left in the segment, but he did frame it at the beginning about cable news. What would you say to the person out there pastorally, just who is constantly watching cable news and maybe what effect uh, that could be subconsciously even having on them? What what, what would your words to those people? Uh, one, I, I mean, I don't think the vast majority, I mean, maybe the people do use cable news. That's not really the point. I just think the leaders that I know and trust and follow the most, um, the vast majority of them have made decisions about how much media they're consuming. Like they, yeah. there's a couple of common threads when it comes to like the people that I listen to, that I follow, that I respect. And one of the main common threads is I, I curate and limit how much I'm taking in. So at the very least, anecdotally, if that's consistent among a number of voices that I really respect and look up to, I think, all right, maybe there's something to yep. uh, pushing against 24-7 consumption. That's good. That's a good word. Go ahead and read this article, Ed Stetzer, on our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to end the show with an inspiring story out of the state of Mississippi. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. We're about done here, wrapping up the show. One of the things we enjoy doing on the show here, and I don't even know, we never made a decision to start doing this, but now we do it every day. Ian tells us about the holidays that that we are all missing, that we all need to know, and will make our day brighter. Ian, what are the holidays of Do people know that you're joking when you say it like that? When you're, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know that everyone's reading your sarcasm. They're like, wow, this guy is really. I got my cakes. Re- I got a cake ready. <laughs> Do you? See, that's my point. That's my no. point. All I right. So. Uh, I feel like they can feel my sarcasm here. They can feel so? my sarcasm. All right. Well, fingers crossed. I do enjoy this part of the show, though. I do so enjoy weird. finding about the random. Uh, it's National Cat Day. So 
<laughs> you feel about cats the way you do about avocados? Is that? I I actually grew up with two cats. I like cats. I'm much more of a dog mm-hmm. person now that uh, now that I have two dogs. So do you ever have cats oh, yeah, in your constantly. house? Constantly. We had about 47 growing up, and uh, <laughs> we, we bred them. We bred You're them. That family. Like rich debutantes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have asked. I should we have did. learned my lesson. <laughs> we after did two have years. a lot. Of, we did have a lot of cats. Though we had one cat. Um, it was. It's funny. We got two cats when I was about two years old, and my my parents let me name them. So one of them I named <laughs> Peanut course. Butter because he was brown, and the the other That's one I bad. named Frunkle. And to to this day, we have no <laughs> idea what a Frunkle is. Like no one has any. Like he clearly <laughs> said Peanut Butter, which we shortened to Peanut, and then and then I was like, and this one shall be Frunkle. Like I have no <laughs> no no clue. Awesome. Yeah, we've had we've had a lot of. I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of cats, but I'm a, ah, equal opportunity. That's that's not what this segment is okay. about. It's also super exciting National Oatmeal Day. So, I love oatmeal. Of course, you love oatmeal. I had it this of morning. Of course, you do. I had it this oh, morning. <laughs> like least. What is that supposed to mean? Of course, I'm filling your own blanks, Brian. Least surprising admission of your life. <laughs> super into oatmeal. Okay. <laughs> really, really love the color white. Love plain yogurt. Um. Ooh, it's, oh, I'm gonna stand behind oatmeal right now. I'm gonna. That's go, no, the thing you're standing behind. Some some syrup, some raisins, maybe some fruit. Yeah, I'm no, sorry, I'm I fell asleep halfway go. through. What were you saying? Was... <laughs> oh, what are you making an omelet every I'm morning? Eating... <laughs> no, I'm not eating anything. I, that's that's the sad reality of my life. It's just uh, coffee oh, and then okay. get to work. Um, now na- I do I do also like oatmeal. By the way, anyway, National Hermit Good. Day, which is all of us right now, right? That's like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All the hermits are like it's my moment of the sun. Um, the COVID yeah, holiday. No kidding. Yeah. World Stroke Day. Why is that a oh, maybe like an, that's more of like an observance than a holiday? It's sure. under the it's under holiday. Maybe it's like a golf thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> swimming yeah, or swimming exactly. It's Profit Day. Oh, they knew it already though. Yeah, they knew that it was coming. Oh boy, how do, you didn't know which profit I was talking about. Uh, King's Court Nation Day oh, in Cambodia, so that's exciting. Republic Day in Turkey, okay. and uh, oh. the Prophet Muhammad's birthday in Egypt. It's not his birthday in other places, just in yeah, Egypt. just in Egypt. It seems like I don't know. Okay, I had a lot of random holidays today. I do like Turkey, so uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. We're getting loopy at the end of the show here. All right. I did want to end today's show with an inspirational story. I just found it and and I was like, man, that is just uh, you know, every now and then it's good to just uh just be reminded of uh that God is doing amazing things in places that you wouldn't expect. So with that in mind, let me read this. It's from Christian Headlines. A new start, it says, 17 inmates baptized in a Mississippi jail. Uh Covington County Sheriff's Office in Collins, Mississippi celebrated the baptism of 17 inmates last week. They said, we hope this is a new start and will change the lives of these and many more, they said in a Facebook post. Uh, Attached to the post were two pictures of four women in pink jumpsuits and 13 men in striped jumpsuits who were baptized. Hundreds of well-wishers congratulated the inmates on their decision. Several family members and friends celebrated inmates by name. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, former inmate Alfio made an 11-foot cross that Hollywood Impact Studios prison ministry can use to further their evangelism in the Los Angeles County prison system. 
Alfio, who was arrested more than 50 times, said he realized that he needed to, quote, pick a side. And I picked Jesus, he said. Follow me and it'll be better than you think. He was released two years earlier than scheduled for his 11-year sentence. And so it goes on to talk about uh, that how they make crosses for the Hollywood Impact Studios uh, and this prison ministry. I read that. And, you know, man, when we do these shows and we tend to necessarily talk politics a lot, we talk COVID, we talk stuff that's bad about the church. And sometimes you could just kind of, ah, just say, is there anything, you know, you, you can get down sometimes, right? It could become heavy. And so to read stories like this and be reminded uh, of God's work, you know, most people, even though we know differently that God's, uh, at, that so much good stuff happens in prisons, that there's great ministry from the outside, you probably think prisons, that's not where this is going to happen, right? These things aren't going to happen here. And so to read these kinds of stories and celebrate, it just kind of not just puts a smile on your face, but is reminded, okay, God's still in the business of taking the broken and making them whole, taking the, you know, the lost or found, whatever metaphor from the Bible you want to use. Uh, I don't know. I find these stories really inspiring. Why uh, I'm interested, you, you said you don't typically tend to think of things like this happening in prisons. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I would say that I would say I meant that to be more not just me, but just most people probably like, oh, prisoners, you know, they're all bad people. Uh, you know, they're they're beyond, uh, you know, uh, f- even even God can't get to them. I know most of us don't believe that in our head, but I, I just think that we have this picture of prisons. And you and I have, you know, we had on Lewis Dooley. You've talked about the stuff, uh, the churches being planted in prison. So obviously I know differently, but I think if you asked average people, is God at work in the prisons? They'd be like, what? That doesn't make sense. No, God's at work in churches or wherever else. And and so to, again, be reminded of what's going on in prisons. I've had the blessing, and I think you have too, of doing prison ministry at different points yeah. in my life. Uh, and God, God's doing amazing work in prison. So I'm not saying right now, I'm like, he would never do that. But I think it's easy to forget, like, man, God's still in the transformation business. Uh, and people that we might deem far from God, whether that's true or not, uh, God's still in the business of of uh, transforming and changing and saving people. And I think as we're reminded of that, especially when we've been believers for a long time and we could get kind of cynical, these kind of stories kind of snap you out of any cynicism. Do you, you, you really have. think the the vast majority of people um, don't anticipate like good things happening in prisons or, or to prisoners? Is that a, you think that you think that's the majority? Uh, I, I just don't think people give it much thought. I would say within the church, I don't, I think we know that God's at work. I just, you and I have done many a story where, you know, people think certain thing about what people in prison are like, right? They're just criminals. They're bad people can't be rehabilitated. You and I've had this discussion around the death penalty multiple times. Um, and so, yeah, I think people, if they sat back, do you think God can save? Pri-? Obviously. Yes. God's been doing that forever. Um, but again, I think just seeing these stories and reading their testimonies, I guess that's what I'm getting at, is just inspiring. It inspires me. And uh, I, these types of inspirational stories, like I said, can kind of knock the cynicism off of me that things like politics and other things uh, can be easy to settle yeah, in. Under. Definitely, definitely a powerful story for sure. Absolutely. We put this up on our Facebook page. It's called A New Start, 17 Inmates Baptized in a Mississippi Jail. Hopefully you find great inspiration being reminded that God is still at work in our churches, uh, in our towns, in the prisons. God's still at work uh, transforming and bringing salvation. It's good news. Well, tomorrow we've got some great people lined up. We are going to want to join us for our Friday show. We're excited 
uh, to be together again. If you missed any of the show, go to our podcast. Get it wherever it is you get your podcast. We're glad that you joined us today. Uh, For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.